your Bible, would you take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at the last verse of our passage from Easter Sunday. Uh, we're not very far into this letter yet, but we're also, as far as I can tell, not in a rush to get through it. So, um, Today, I want to take some time to sort of recap where we've been, remember some of these deep truths that we've looked at in chapters 1 and chapter 2 through verse 10, but then use that recap as a way then to get into verse 10 and, and drill down a little bit deeper into it. I think there's some truths that we can really get from Ephesians 2.10 if we would just meditate on that a little bit more. So that's the, that's the hope for today. Um, We've said, just to bring you back into the, the big picture of Ephesians, we've said multiple times that the book of Ephesians breaks down most easily into two different parts, with the doctrine or the theology being focused in the first three chapters of the letter, and then the application being primarily found in the second half of the book. However, there's also a shift in thought and focus that occurs between Ephesians 2.10 and Ephesians 2.10. To 11. So if Ephesians 4.1, as Trevor pointed out in our uh, Fellowship of the Word, works as sort of a hinge for the whole book, then Ephesians 2.10 might be a hinge before the big hinge. Uh, I thought about it like those corner cupboards that you have that have two hinges. Or maybe you can think about sort of an accordion, uh, a, a three-panel accordion door. Uh, and you can see those three panels in our summary statement for the book of Ephesians, which is this. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. So the hinge of Ephesians 2.10 takes us from this part about being a new people in Ephesians 1.3 through Ephesians 2.10 into this second section about this new unity that, that's talked about in Ephesians 2.11 through the end of chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to describe the new way in which we are to walk as God's new and unified people. So reflect with me now a little bit on, on where we've been. From chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, Paul again has been showing us how God has made us a new people, a completely new humanity in Christ. He began this description and, and this telling of how this has happened with a call for us to worship our triune God for his, uh, for his majestic work of salvation. So we saw it in chapter 1, verses 3, 3 through 14, that we're called to praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. We are to praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. We're to praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the equal inheritance that they have planned and guaranteed for us. And in that call to worship our God, Paul reminds us that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. That he had planned our redemption from eternity past, that he had, has freely chosen to shower us with grace in Christ, and that we that all we who have um, that, that all that we have from God has been guaranteed by him sending his spirit to live within us. And so we see Paul use this refrain to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, that's not a verbal pause for Paul. That's not like when we say, um, and you're not sure what to say next. No, 
That's a refrain that Paul says over and over again because that's the heartbeat that he has to the praise of his glorious grace. And it's a theme throughout this first section. So from that call to worship, then, you remember Paul prays for the Ephesians, and he teaches us how to pray for one another. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 says, Let us pray that God would give us a knowledge of himself and of all that is ours in Christ. He prays that we would know who God is, and that we would also know the hope of our calling, and the riches of our inheritance, and the greatness of his power to us in Christ. And this, again, is not a knowledge that's just in our heads, it's a knowledge that we hold in our minds and in our hearts and even in our wills. It's a knowledge that affects us spiritually and emotionally. It's a knowledge that motivates us to action. Knowing Christ changes us. This meditation on what God has done in Christ then gets very personal in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as Paul says to us, remember who you once were and how you once walked and glorify God now as the only one who can save you. Remember how hopeless you were before Christ. You were dead. Enslaved, you were condemned. You were dead in sins and trespasses, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and justly condemned by God's righteousness. And this is the state that we all would have stayed in because dead, enslaved, condemned people can't do anything to rescue themselves. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, who is great in love, made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, and he's saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that there's no room for boasting in ourselves or any works that we do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 sums this up well. This is what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so having tied all of that up, all of this wonder at God's grace and glory and salvation, all of this praise to God for what he's done, the question, at least for me, becomes, why doesn't Paul stop at verse 9? I think he said everything he needs to say, it feels like. He's talked about what God has done for us in, in Christ. He's spoken of that over and over again, and he sums it up so well, verses 8 and 9. Why is verse 10 even necessary? Because he seems to have made his point. He's made this point that God has saved us out of the greatness of his love and his power. He's done it for his own glory. And he's done it not because of any good works that we have done in ourselves. But then, look at verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why does Paul move from speaking about God good works in the negative light in verse 9, and then talking about how we're supposed to be doing good works in verse 10. I want us to try to answer some of these questions. That's why I really want to think deeply on, on Ephesians 2.10. And as we do, this will be our big idea. I think this is what Paul and what God's Word is telling us to do today. He's saying, walk in the good works that God in Christ has created us for and ordained for us to do. That's a little long, I'll say it. Walk in the good works, the good works that God in Christ has created us for and ordained for us to do. Walk in the good works that God in Christ has created us for and ordained for us to do. 
as human beings, we're often wrestling with questions of purpose. Why am I here? What's the point of my life? Who really am I? We pause at certain moments and we just say, why am I even doing what I am doing? We ask children this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think that question is probably less about job or vocation and more of a question about what's your life going to be focused on? Who will you be? Having described how God has made us into a new people, Paul is now going to transition to help us see why he has made us a new people. Why God has not simply saved our souls and then taken us to heaven. Why are we still here? What, what are we supposed to be doing with our lives? Ephesians 2.10 answers that question. What am I supposed to be doing with my life if I'm a follower of Jesus? Walk in the good works that God in Christ has created us for and ordained for us to do. Two main points today, both drawn straight from that big idea. And the first is this. God in Christ has created us to do good. God in Christ has created us to do good. First part of Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The language of creation is strong here. Do you see that? It, it takes us back to Genesis and the creation of all things. In fact, that word workmanship, uh, the word that's translated workmanship, is found in only one other place in the New Testament. It's found in Romans 1.20, and there it refers to the creation of the world. This is what Romans 1.20 says of God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The things that have been made. That's the word workmanship here in Ephesians 2.10. So there's this shadow of the original creation here, reminding us that before the fall we were created by God to live for his glory, just as all of creation is. The things that have been made, including and even especially Human beings are made to image God and to show who he is. And yet sin has corrupted us so that we don't glorify God with our lives. As the rest of Romans 1 shows, we have chosen our own glory above God's glory. And that's what put, puts us in the miserable state that's described at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Which is why God has to save us. Why we, we have to be made a new people through the coming of Jesus. So... What I would say is, while the creation of the world comes to mind when we hear all this talk about creation, the focus here is not on the creation of the world, but the, the focus here is on the new creation that the gospel accomplishes and that Paul's been talking about. Paul is drawing attention to the fact that everyone who turns from sin and trusts in Christ is made a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 was a verse that... I memorized as a young child. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are created to glorify God. And now, because of through the, through the gospel, we have been recreated to glorify God. And specifically here in this verse, it says we are created to glorify God by doing good works. Not good works that save us. Very clear. We look back at, chapter, at verse 9. These good works do not save us, but they are good works nonetheless. 
The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word, what do you think? Poem. It's, it's where we get our English word poem from. Yeah. And so some people have, have, some commentators have said that this verse could actually be translated, we are his work of art, or we are his masterpiece. Think about art. Art is made to be shared. It's meant to display the greatness of the artist as others look at it, or listen to it, or enjoy it. It's intended to communicate some beauty and truth. Uh, imagine an artist creating a beautiful painting or a sculpture, and then taking it and hiding it in a closet. Think of someone writing an amazing novel and then never letting anyone else read it. It just stays on their that seems strange because art is, is made to be shared and it's made to be displayed in this world. I think children understand this better than any of us. What happens when a child draws a picture? What's the first thing they do? They bring it to you and say, look. And then they say, why have you not put it on the fridge yet? Because it needs to be displayed for everyone to see, right? That's, that's, a, a, a pause, that's a, a, an impulse that shows this is something beautiful and people need to see it. And so if God has created a masterpiece in his people by saving us, if he's made us into a masterpiece, doesn't it make sense that we would be created then to show forth his greatness and the wonder of what he has done in redeeming us? And here Paul says that the way that we do that, the way we show we are God's masterpiece, the way we reflect his glory is by doing good works. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So a movie is watched, a dinner is eaten, a novel is read, a Christian does good works. So what are these good works? Well, that's where it's helpful to think of this verse as a turning point in the book, I think, because the good works would seem to be what follows in the rest of this letter. Furthermore, if we define good works by looking at the rest of the book, the book then we are reminded of the, the corporate nature of this letter, of the fact that, that Paul's not primarily talking to us as, on an individual level, level, but a corporate level. Remember, most of the, the yous in the book of Ephesians are y'alls. It's, it's plural. Even verse 10, what does it say? It says, we. It doesn't say you. It says, we are his workmanship. All of us together. And so this is actually, just keep that in mind as we move into chapter 2, because this is going to help us see why he then moves into this discussion about a new unity amongst all of us who are so different. That's part of being his masterpiece, is this new unity. This, this unity is part of what it means to be God's work of art, displaying the beauty of the new creation that we are as God's people and corporately as the church of Jesus Christ. God has created us, all of us, together, to do good all together and to therefore show his greatness. Now this flows into our next point. Not only has God in Christ created us to do good, but secondly, God in Christ has ordained the good works for us to do. God in Christ has ordained the good works for us to do. To ordain something. It, it has to do with commanding something or decreeing something. So when you hear that word ordain, you might think about a king or someone in authority ordaining that something needs to be done. 
We can think about those famous stories in the book of Daniel, where some of the kings would ordain the worship of an idol. Everybody has to worship this idol. Or they would ordain that you can't pray to anyone except to the king. They would make these big statements. In a lesser way, you might think about our own government that ordains and sets certain laws in place. And here we find that God has ordained, he has commanded, he has laid out the good works that we are supposed to do. Look again at verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared them, the good works, beforehand. Our good works are like our potluck meal. All of the food has been prepared beforehand. And soon we are going to walk through the line and eat everything that's been made. In the context of chapters 1 and 2, we're reminded that God from eternity past ordained and foreknew and predestined all these different actions and people and the work of salvation. And so it would seem that he not only planned the work of salvation, but he also even planned the good works that we would do once we are redeemed. How do we understand that? I think there's a couple different ways to think about it. We could think of this on the level of what some people may call God's will for your life. And we could ask, is this verse saying that God has planned out each of the good works done for his glory that we're going to perform in our lives? Are all of those specific things that we will do, are they laid out for us? Well, certainly God is sovereign, isn't he? He knows the details of the future, including all of our individual futures. So, of course, he knows those things and he's ordained those things. But is that what this verse is focusing on? I would think, actually, it's focusing on something different. I think it seems to be focusing more on the fact that God has made it clear through his word exactly how we as his people are to live in this world as we await his kingdom. What he's ordained is he says, I've ordained the good works that you are supposed to do. I've told you the good works that you're supposed to do. And I think one reason to say that is the presence of that word, walk, in verse 10, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the first time that that word appears here in the book of Ephesians. But starting in Ephesians 4, 1, when things get really practical, walk becomes the key word of this letter, as Paul tells us how we should walk as God's redeemed people. He tells us exactly what kind of a path we have been saved to walk along. The path is, is prepared before him. The path is, is written down for us in, in God's word. So we've said that, that God in Christ has created us to do good works. He has ordained the good works that we are to do. Now, I want to, to bring out a few sub-thoughts to try and bring some clarification to these big, broader thoughts. Five sub-thoughts, to be exact. Okay. As I was processing this, I thought, maybe we could think about this sermon like me trying to wrap up a gift. Okay, these first two points are the bigger points. They're like the wrapping paper that we've cut to size and we've laid it out on the, on the table. So this is the big thing. And now we're going to try and wrap it up. And so these five points are the scotch tape. And we're just going to try to put it all together and make it neat and, and fit. So these are sub-points of these bigger points. And hopefully it all just sort of weaves together and it's a beautiful present when we're all done. We'll put a bow on it. Okay, so first of these sub-points. Number one, God decides what is good. God decides what is good. When we think about doing good works, we, we know that there's many people in our world that are seeking to do good. 
at the same time are very confused about what's really good. There are people who do what they perceive to be good, while another person perceives the good work that they're doing to, in fact, be evil. So how do we know what is good? I think what's amazing here is to think about the fact that God has defined, has laid out the good works in his word to help clear up all of that confusion. Not completely, of course, right? The followers of Jesus around the world are going to disagree about what we as Christians are supposed to be doing, but, but we know that the scriptures are the place to turn to to understand what good is and what good works are, because God himself is the definition of, of good. His character is, and his character is revealed in his word, because God himself, God, God is love, and we know that, that through the, the scriptures, we know more about what love is and what acting loving looks like. So God decides what is good, what a good work is. That leads to a second thought. Number two, God clearly states what is good. So God has decided what is good based on his character, and he clearly states what is good. Now, I'm probably being a little redundant, right? I mean, I said this already, but I hope I'm just being plain and, and thorough instead of redundant. But we can, we can debate what, what truly is good, or we can get caught up in questions of, of what is God's will for my life, or, or what is the good that I'm supposed to do today. Even as a church, we might wonder what God wants us to do in our city through the, the gifts that he's given us as a, as a whole. And often we imagine that the answer to that, those questions about what we're supposed to do it has to be revealed in some sort of strange, unclear, or some sort of supernatural way. But the reality is that God has told us what the good works he has laid out for us are. He's told us what we're supposed to do. Now certainly, as I said, there can be debate amongst Christians, but there, there's a lot more in Scripture that is crystal clear than is confusing. We know what these good works are. There can even be, in a situation, more than one good thing to do, and we will trust the Spirit to guide us, but we can be certain about what God has told us is good and about what is not good what we are to do, and what we're not to do. I remember a co-worker from many years past at, uh, when I was working at Starbucks. And she told me it was God's will for her to do something that God's word clearly forbids. And so as lovingly as possible, I said, that can't be God's will for you. <laughs> because scripture says that that's sinful. I, we know what God's will is because he's laid it out clearly. God has declared what is good. He's shown us here in Ephesians the new unity and the, the new walk that we are to have as God's new people. He's described what members of his kingdom look like in places like the Sermon on the Mount. He's summed up the law as loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Even last week, you remember in Titus 3, we were, uh, um, Casey told us about that we're getting this family code a way that we are to live as God's family. The Old and the New Testaments teach us in stories and in commands about the good works of forgiveness, of faithfulness, of worship, of gospel witness, of care for the poor and immigrant, of generosity, and on and on and on. So I say all this to say, if we're concerned about what God's will is for us, then what do we need to do? We need to study His Word. But we need to study his word because his will is clearly revealed in the pages of Scripture. Ultimately, we have no excuse for not walking in God's ways. We 
have no excuse for ignoring his commands and rejecting his call because he's laid out the good works that we are to do clearly in Scripture. So God decides what is good, and God has clearly declared what is good, primarily in his word. And the third thought, then, is this. Good works are inevitable for God's children. Good works are inevitable for God's children. I planted some seeds yesterday. I planted some lettuce. Planted some zucchini. Planted, planted a little squash. And while there are factors that may keep them from growing, we know that healthy seeds produce fruit, right? That's what they've been created to do. If God in Christ has created us to do good works, and if God in Christ has ordained the good works for us to do, then good works are an expected and even a non-negotiable part of being a follower of Jesus. God has laid out the good works for all of his people to do. So if we are his people, then we will walk in his ways. And if we claim to be his people, but we don't walk in his ways, then we can simply have no confidence that we are his people. We are saved by grace alone, right? Has that been clear in Ephesians? We are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Paul has, has shown that our salvation is ordained by God, that we are, are not saved accidentally, but according to God's eternal purposes. And we are saved for a purpose. The seed of the gospel bears the fruit of good works in our lives. How often does the seed of the gospel bear the fruit of good works in the life of a Christian? Every time. Every single time it bears the fruit of good works. If it doesn't, then there's something wrong. As we get into these more practical sections of Ephesians, let's remember that these are not optional. That, that we can't receive the truths about salvation and then ignore the call that, that that salvation puts on our lives. We can't segment our faith into one part of our lives when God has saved us to take over our entire lives so that we might walk in his ways. Good works are inevitable for God's children. But also, good works are God's work. That's the point of these sub-points, these pieces of scotch tape. <laughs> good works are God's work. Verse 10 says that we are created for good works, and that God has laid those works out for us. Thinking about cooking with a, a small child that wants to cook. If you cook with a small child, you realize that they're not doing most of the things. You're laying everything out. Have you ever had a child even just try to dump something from a, table, a teaspoon measurement? You, you hold the teaspoon in their hand and you pour it and then you even have to help them turn it or else it's, it's going over here. And in some sense, isn't that what we see with, with the good works that, that we are doing? That God has, has created us for these good works and then he's laid them out for us. And while we might want to think that we're the focus of our good works, Paul centers our good works in God. 
So, so we see that the, the grace that saved us is also the grace that sanctifies us. The good news of the gospel is the power for the works that flow from the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we do good works how? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Before we were Christians, we could do nothing but sin. But now that Jesus has transformed us and filled us with his spirit, we are able to do good works. Why? Through his strength, through him working through us. This means that the call to walk in good works is not a means of, of making us something that we are not, but rather of being who we have been created to be in Christ. To do good works is, is to be who you are as a Christian. The, the false message of salvation by good works is ultimately a call for us to, tr to try and become something that we are not and who we never could be on our own. We can't be good by ourselves. But the gospel call is that we have been made new in Christ and now we are able to become who we truly are, who God has made us and empowered us to be. And that's children of God who do good works. Now, do we ultimately... Do we do those good works? Yes. But ultimately, no. <laughs> because good works are God's work. Which leads us to a fifth and final subplot, which is that good works are for God's glory. Good works are for God's glory. And in some ways, I feel like this point answers my question about the connection between verse, between everything that comes before verse 10 and, and verse 10. Because it's here that we see there is no disconnect between verse 10 and everything that came before it. Because Paul has been showing over and over again that the, the work of salvation and the way that God has chosen to save his people all resounds to God's glory, right? That, that's been his underlying theme. And here we see that God is the one who has created us for good works. God is the one who has laid out those works for us to do. God in Christ through the indwelling of the Spirit is the one who empowers us to do those good works. And so all of these good works lead to God's glory. Let me close with some advice from a Disney princess. In Frozen 2, not the first, the second, Frozen 2, uh, Princess Anna finds herself in this seemingly helpless situation. And she's struggling with this temptation to just give up. And she eventually sings this advice to herself. Do you know what the advice is? Anyone know? The advice is do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Now I don't know Frozen too well enough. I've heard the songs a lot so I can't tell you what the context completely is. But this is what I see. I see that our Father has laid out before us right things. Good works prepared before him. Good works that are a part of his plan of redemption. He's defined for us what is good. And he has clearly declared what works we are to do in the pages of scripture. He's, he's made us for these good works. He empowers us to do them. And he's glorified when we walk in his ways and what he's called us to do. So when we're faced, when we as his people find ourselves with those questions of wondering who we are, or wondering what we're supposed to do, 
we can know that we're simply called to faithfully walk this path of good works that's laid out for us, that's made clear to us. What are we supposed to do? Who are we? We are people who are supposed to imperfectly but consistently do the next right thing. Whatever it is, whatever is laid in front of us in our daily lives, you do the next right thing that God has made clear through his word for us. We do it no matter how small it is or how large it is. We just do the next right thing. And the faithfulness, the amazing thing here is that the faithfulness of all of us together, walking in the strength of God's spirit and proclaiming the hope of the gospel as we do these good works, that's what God has created us for. To be this amazing group of people who have been redeemed and are now walking in the good works that God has laid out before us. That each day we wake up and we say, what can I do in God's strength? What, what's the next right thing I can do for God's glory? What's the good work that's laid out for me today? It could be saying no to some temptation. It could be actively loving someone. It could be anything and everything, but it's the next thing that's in front of us that God has called us to do. So Christian, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing to think about? You've been made completely new, and we as the church are a completely new humanity. You are God's masterpiece. And he has clearly communicated the way that you are to walk for his glory and for your joy. Church, we are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship. And he has clearly communicated the way that we are to walk for his glory and for our joy. So, what does God's word say to us? It says, walk. It's a command. Walk. Take the next step. Do the next right thing. Walk in the good works that God in Christ has made you for and ordained for you to do. As we take the Lord's Supper now, we're proclaiming all of these truths that we've been studying in Ephesians 1, 3 through 2, 10. We're proclaiming that we are made for God's glory, that our sins separated us from God and, and made it so that we could not live for his glory. But God has sent Jesus to redeem us, to, to recreate us. Jesus came and he lived a life of perfection. He did every good work that the Father laid out for him to do. And then he died. He died as a substitute for our sin, for all of our falling short of God's glory. And he rose again to give us new life, to make us his masterpieces once again, living for his praise as we walk in his ways. This all comes to us not through good works, but by grace, through repentance and faith. And so as we take this meal, we do it to remember what Christ has done for us. But we also do it to remember who he has made us to be. That he has made us his children. He's called us to walk in his ways for his glory. If you're a child of God through faith in Christ, and if you've been baptized as a profession of that faith, then I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If that's not true of you, I just ask that you let the bread and the cup pass as we try to protect the sacredness of, of this meal. Uh, we're going to take a moment of silence just to reflect on God's word, prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. I'll pray, and then uh, Andrew is going to help me distribute the bread.
the cup and we'll take them all together. But let's take a moment of silence and then I'll pray. Thank you. 